We're in Luke chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 15. Let's pray together. Then we'll look at the text. God, I pray that we can have the same hopeful anticipation as the crowds do that come out to John the Baptist, looking for the Messiah, looking for the solution, knowing that the solution is so far beyond them and, of course, beyond us as well. I pray that we can truly and completely despair of any ability of our own to be able to fix or reconcile ourselves to you and that we would simply sit long with all that we have for you and for your intervention in our lives. Thank you, God, that you are good for it and you bring it to us and here you show it in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, it is the time of year where we anticipate Jesus Christ is coming to town. But that was the same anticipation of the Christ as we look at it in verse 15. Now, last week we looked at John the Baptist out in the middle of the desert. I'm talking a horrible desert. Deb and I were able to go visit it just about a year and a half ago. And the very spot where John preached doesn't just look like sand desert. It looks like a stinking moonscape. It is so barren there. And, and yet, people would travel a good little distance from Jerusalem down into the wilderness to hear John preach. Why? Because a big part of it was they anticipated that perhaps he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And as they came to him with great eagerness, there John waited their arrival. And as they came, he greeted them with these jolly words, you bunch of snakes. Wow, what a start. One of the greatest preachers of of all time in the Bible. The greatest of all the prophets, according to Jesus. And that's his opening. You brood of vipers. You're just trying to cover yourselves right now. Let's get real about what's really going on. And that's what he says, basically, in in verse 7 through through 9, as he welcomes the crowds, wanting, actually, to be baptized. And, And that is his response. But he also knew, being a prophet, that that's what it was going to take to get through to these folks that were so steeped in their own religion that they couldn't actually see past their own traditions to unveil that to see the depth of their own need. And now in verse 15, as we pick up the story in the section that we're studying today, it says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Bishop, if you can move forward a slide. My clicker doesn't work, so there'll be a lot of, Bishop, do you mind? We don't have some guy who's actually a bishop back there, you know, but... (laughs) His first name is Bishop, in case you're you know, wondering with us. Like, that's where we throw our bishops. We, we put them up there on the stage. A couple of them are running on a treadmill to keep the electricity going. Another one's any kind of controlling this. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like uh, Bruce Springsteen's rendition a bit better than Burl Ives. 
of, of Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, you know, Burl's got it going on. He's a classic. He'll always be on TV thanks to the, uh, you know, the, the animated versions of this. But with, with that idea that Santa Claus is coming to town, it begins with the idea, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, if you really look at those lyrics, Santa is pretty darn scary in, 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 this, in this version of it. Um, as a matter of fact, okay, let, me, let, me just, let me just read it to you. Well, I don't have it. Well, let me see if I, if I know it. If not, you finish it for me. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, do you not see like a mom with a little kid that's like really maybe happy and excited about Santa? And, and she's like, you better not cry. Like, should I be crying? Like, what's, what, what's, what's going on? Oh, well, let me tell you more, son. He's making a list. And he's checking it twice. He's going to see who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh, and this may freak you out, but he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Santa Claus is coming to town. And suddenly that kid's like, oh! Oh no, Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh no. <laughs> Telling brothers and sisters, you Santa Claus is coming? What do we do? What do we do? Can anyone save us? Well, the, the word that's used here in verse 15 of they were waiting expectantly, or they were they were waiting in expectation. It's it's a very interesting word. Because it has both on one side of it, the deepest of all hope. But on the other side, it's a very interesting word, how, how it's chosen by Luke in this passage here. But it also has the deepest dread of, of any type of word of anticipation as well. And I imagine it just depends on what, what, what uh, side of the coin you're on at the moment, in a sense. Whether you've been good or you've been bad. Whether you've been naughty or whether you've been nice. And if you've been nice, the anticipation is an incredible anticipation to be able to wait expectantly. And here's praying that that's where we are today. But if you've been naughty, and if Jesus were to come in, let's say, 12 minutes from now, and as you know, Thessalonians and Revelation describes it, and the, the sky is literally opened up, and, and billions upon billions of angels come to separate us, and that moment then comes, how do you feel? Like if, if it's, you know, nothing's going to happen between, you know, now and then in terms of what you're going to do with your life, it's just going to happen. Are you there with the, yes, Santa Claus is coming to town, or, oh, Santa Claus is coming to town? Now, the, the idea of waiting with expectation that Jesus is coming, that Jesus has been born, that Jesus has intervened in mankind. We, we like the little baby in the manger. You know, I like my little six-pound, three-ounce baby Jesus. 
you know where I'm going with that. I'll leave it there. That's a lot safer. That's a lot more cuddly than what it really means to have Emmanuel, God with us. Basically, what we're asking for, as, as we want baby Jesus here, is we want the judge of all humanity to come and leave us no excuse. To give us every opportunity, but likewise, to leave us with no excuse. And that is exactly what the arrival of Jesus is, and that is why they get it right here. As the people were waiting expectantly for the Messiah, for the Christ, they knew that there was an edge to the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, would be coming to town. And, and so he is. But I, but I ask this, is as we anticipate all the excitement of each shopping day that gets off our calendar, and as Christmas looms larger, that we do so with the anticipation and expectation that we are about to come before the judge of the universe. And as we celebrate that, that we can celebrate the fact that the judge of the universe is among us, not because we like the, the cuddly baby, but because we have surrendered ourselves fully. Every little corner of our life, every affection, allegiance, every um, agenda, ambition that we have, everything that we have, that we are ready to have said before Christ, I have surrendered it all to you. Whatever that might be, that is not in alignment with His great, beautiful, and holy will. And, and, and so we anticipate, just as they did, that Jesus Christ is coming to town. We can head to the next slide, Bishop, please. As we, as we read on, it says, oh, by, by the way, just as a side note of just how humble John was, John the Baptist, I mean, he has, he has all these Jewish leaders, probably some rather prestigious folks based on some of the other Gospels' accounts of them, but very prestigious folks coming out to him in the wilderness, and it'd be easy to be puffed up by that that people were traveling out to see you, crowds larger than this crowd by, by far, you know, schlepping, to use a semi-Jewish word, uh, all the way out to the, the wilderness, Yiddish, uh, out to the wilderness to be able to, to see John. And here's what he says. The one who is coming is more powerful than I, in the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know, there was a saying among the rabbis that circulated around this time that said, every service which a slave performs for his master, so shall a disciple perform for his teacher, except one, the loosing of the strap of his sandal. Because that one activity that a slave would perform for a master was deemed so humiliating that it should not be a task that a disciple would actually do for his teacher. And here John is saying, no, not only would I do it, I would do it if I were worthy. I'm not even worthy of that. And yet he is, is recorded as being the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. 
Say, but he's in the New Testament. Yeah, the New Testament hasn't actually begun yet. It, it may be in the New, New Testament in terms of the scriptures, but the New Testament, the New Covenant, does not begin until Jesus establishes the New Covenant in his blood. So up until this point, of all, I mean, you pick them, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hezekiah, whoever your favorite is, Elijah, Elisha, you pick it, John, number one. And as he anticipates the Christ, I wish I could. I wish I could perform that menial task, but I'm not even worthy of that. That's a selfless servant who's able to be effective for the sake of the Lord. Now here's what he says, which is a rather colorful language by John. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, Herod is now the ruler. He's, he's King Herod's son. He hoped to be king of the Jews as well, Herod. Uh, but, but he was not. He was simply a tetrarch. Tetrarch is the Greek word that means a fourth. So he's kind of a, a one-fourth prince at best. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother, his brother Philip's wife, and all the other things he had done, Herod added to them all, he locked up John in prison. And I'll come back to that story as we get to it in a moment. But, but jumping back to the verses that I've just read. Now Jesus, as he comes, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Now this idea that he has a, uh, a winnowing fork in his hand, is that, that's not a, not a bad depiction right there on the screen of a winnowing fork. It looks like a pitchfork. And... Normally today, we don't use pitchforks for much unless you're baling hay or mulching your yard uh, here in the suburbs. However, in, in first century, we were able to go to a kind of a, 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 a model of a working farm in Nazareth when we were there a couple of years ago. And one of the demonstrations that they had was of a winnowing fork. And in the winnowing fork was a big pile of wheat. And in, in wheat is both chaff and, and the hard seed. You want to gain the hard seed because you can grind that and, and make your bread and other things, but you don't want the chaff. It is good for nothing, and you actually have to get rid of it. Now, the thing that works out easy with regards to winnowing the wheat is that the chaff is actually quite light and that the seed is quite heavy. And so if you can take the winnowing fork, stick it into the pile, and throw it as hard as you can up in the air, it gives time for the seed to fall and the wind to grab the chaff and blow it away. And so any type of a winnowing activity would often occur on top of a hill in a windy spot. And, and here is this picture of Jesus coming, and here we all are. We're the big pile. And the winnowing fork comes in, and up it is, up it is thrown, and the, the, uh, uh, the wheat, which is useful, is then brought into the, the gathering area while the chaff is blown away and then ultimately burned up, it, it, depending on what, what it is that they would do with chaff here. Uh, it's, it's a way of discerning between what is useful and what is not useful, what is noble, what is ignoble, 
what is righteous, what is unrighteous. But Jesus already knows. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. But, but how is it that he's going to help us now? Well, the same way that John is helping us get ready for Jesus. The way that John is helping everybody get ready for Jesus is that he is intervening in their lives. It's good news that he's intervening, but we don't always treat it as good news to have someone intervene in our lives or for someone to bring the winnowing fork into our lives and try to isolate the stuff that needs to be blown out of our lives. And as a matter of fact, those who receive the message well are already recorded in the previous four or five verses. They were the tax collectors. They were the soldiers. They were the folks that were greedy that John looked at them and he intervened and reproved them. And I'll, I'll talk about that word in a bunch in a minute here. But when they received that reproof or that correction or that exposure by, by John, they were able to then themselves discern the chaff from the wheat or the unrighteous from the righteous. And when you have someone open your eyes that way and suddenly it helps you to purify and repent, that's a fantastic gift. As a matter of fact, the way that God helps us to repent, and repentance, by the way, is referred to as a gift three very important times in the New Testament. The first is when all the Jews who repent are recorded as having repented in the book of Acts. When that is recorded in Acts 5.31, it is recorded as, so then God has granted repentance to the Jews, or gifted repentance to the Jews. Later in Acts 11, when the Gentiles, that's us, by the way, not me, yes, you, pretty much, every one of you, and me, we're all Gentiles. And when we all were part of the group that repented, Acts 11 records the Gentiles' repentance as the Jews marveling that the Gentiles get a chance to repent and that God would care about them enough to intervene in their lives. And there it says, and so God has given the gift of repentance even to the Gentiles. And then another situation occurs in 2 Timothy where Paul is a senior pastor, Timothy is a younger evangelist, and Paul is trying to train him how to help those ornery folks that are in your fellowship to repent. Not that that is really applicable here, really. I don't even know why I bring it up, really. But just for the, you know, flushing out the biblical text, what he, what he says is that, that you are to, you are to um, warn them, do so with kindness, in hopes that in the end, God will give them repentance. So repentance is a gift from God. Let's not get that wrong. And if we want a gift this holiday season, please, Lord, bring us all a more radical repentance. Because in the end, you celebrate it. You don't when you anticipate it. You think, oh, I got to deal with this in my life. This is pretty big. This is greed. This is relationships. This is boyfriend, girl. This is intense. What am I? You know, I mean, we, we do not look forward to it. But once we realize that the hand of God, the Holy Spirit, has worked in the situation and allowed us to see with new eyes and righteousness and that, you know, the, the intervening work of, of John in preparing us for Jesus or even Jesus uh, does this in our life, we walk away exuberant, amazed that I was so stubborn against this and yet now that it's been purified, it didn't really hurt that bad. And maybe a little bit, but it was a good hurt. 
Because my life is now set on an amazing path, one that I would never change. And I'm actually embarrassed that I was dragging my heels so bad before that it went on. In, in this passage, it says in verse 19, it's the exact same thing that John does to Herod here. The word rebuked, it says when John rebuked Herod, this is right after saying he proclaimed the good news to them. And then with more specificity, it kind of zooms in on one of them that he's proclaiming the good news to. And as he's proclaiming the good news to Herod, he rebukes him because of the mess that was in his life. He had a relationship that was not in alignment with the will of God. That's always a huge one, by the way. Whether you're married, whether you're single, uh, those, those hard issues are a really good litmus test of whether Jesus is really Lord or not. Yeah. Or whether he's Lord in a general sense, but you know what, Jesus, on this one, I may sin a bit, get it together, hope that person maybe aligns themselves with you. If they do or they don't, I don't know. I mean, this is where so many people go. But anyway, Herod did as well, and it required the intervention of John with this, this idea of rebuking. Now, the Greek word, we're going to go Greek here for a minute. Can you go to the next slide, please? Oh, Bishop. Bishop. Yeah, beautiful. So, uh, the Greek word is elenko, and it's actually the word that's right there in verse 19. Can you hit the next uh, button? Now, one of, one of the best, uh, and, and one more. One of the best dictionaries of the New Testament is Bauer, Art, Denker, and Gingrich, and, and, and it's their Greek lexicon. And the definition of Elenko is to show someone his sin and to summon him to repentance. And you can do it with sisters too, apparently. But yeah, it's an older dictionary, I guess. They don't, don't do the him and her thing. But, but the idea that John had in mind here was to open the eyes of Herod. It wasn't the idea to shut him down with criticism, but to help him by throwing a life preserver his way that'll help him to see where he's at and to know that he needs salvation given where it is that he has ended up. Now, there are two, two uh, words in our New Testament that sometimes we get confused with. And the, the confusing part is that English Bibles will translate them back and forth a little bit too freely when in fact they are distinctly different from one another. Uh, and, and while they are distinct, the, the two words are to rebuke versus to reprove. Now again, I said the English is a bit fluid, unfortunately, in our translations. They're not consistent. It's not as though every time Elenko is there, reprove is used. But I think it's actually a better way to go. Right now you're a bit confused. I hope I'm going to bring this thing around for you. But there's this idea of intervening in someone's life to help them come to change. But then there's another idea in the New Testament where you intervene in someone's life to shut down their activity and protect other people from it. They're not so much interested in change. They're just interested in, this is horrible. Let's stop it before it hurts anyone else or even you anymore. And, and that is often the idea of rebuke. The idea of reprove is to be able to bring about change. Even though my English Bible right here says reprove, if you have the ESV or other Bibles, it, it is actually translated reprove for this passage. But just for the sake of not trying to get into the Greek too much, I'm going to talk about reprove on one hand and rebuke on the other. When Jesus wants to shut down the wind and the waves that is about to swamp the boat 
and drown all the disciples, he stands up in the boat and he doesn't reprove the wind and the waves. He doesn't say, hey, let's reason together here. I think wind and waves, you could repent and perhaps see another way of operating as natural forces. He doesn't do that. What does he do to the wind and the waves? He rebukes the wind and the waves. He shuts that stuff down because of the harmfulness of it. Now, again, we may be doing wrong. You may be about to touch the stove and mom is not going to reprove you in that moment. She's going to rebuke you for your own good and for the sake of not having to deal with a copay so close to the holidays. Now, to reprove, to reprove in a uh, synonym dictionary of the New Testament says reprove is actually a much more pregnant word. It is to to intervene with someone in such a way as to wield the victorious arms of truth to bring that person to a confession, conviction, and awareness of their sin so as to bring them to repentance. And it's a, it's a courtroom word uh, that, that is often used here. And so that's what John is trying to do with Herod. But Herod wants none of it. Herod wants his sin more than he wants the intervening gift of God bringing him repentance through the Holy Spirit, through a Spirit-inspired prophet. And, and for us, I think we've got we've to make sure that we want the gift. And, and that gift is a gift of, of getting exposed. As a matter of fact, the, the word that is reprove is quite as easily translated expose or convict. Those are the three main translations of it in our New Testament, of Alenko. Expose, convict, and reprove. Let me just share some passages that give you a flavor of this word. Because in the end, I have a goal here. What is my goal? I want us all to be more receptive to the work of God the Holy Spirit through His reproving work of intervening in our life. And realizing it ain't so bad. And it's the very thing that will prepare you for the arrival of Jesus. Because that's what John is doing. John 3, the Bible writes, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. Alenko. Ain't that true? It's true for me. If I got something going on, I, I know if suddenly I'm about to have a, a lunch with another disciple and it's a spiritually discerning person thinking, oh, I know what's going to happen. They're going to ask how things are going and, oh, I better be open. Oh, all right, I can do it. I can do it. Right? I mean, it's terrible, but it's what sin does to us. It, it, it makes us become hypersensitive even to the motives of other people that are trying to help us in our lives because we want to do what we want to do and, and so sin builds up these barriers to protect itself and we've got to be aware of that. Yeah. Ephesians 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Alenko. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
And when Jesus comes back to the church, he does the same thing himself. He comes back to the church in Revelation, to Laodicea, and that church has become worldly, self-reliant, materialistic. And when he comes to that church, he comes to them and says, you're lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're neither, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is all his reproof, by the way. And then he says, you don't even realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. If they were in Virginia, naked. But, but then he says right after that, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be earnest and repent. I stand at the door and knock. I'm here. Open the door. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to swim a sea. All you have to do is simply be humble to the intervening work of God's loving intervention in my life and in your life. It's not easy. That's why we're going through all this. That's why the Bible goes through all of this. So I always have to be reminded of this because it, it is not easy. But the Bible also gives us a little bit of guidance with regards to this. You know, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament uses the word reproof quite a bit. And I'll, I'll just read you some select passages from, from Proverbs. My child, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. It can be that you, like, oh, I hate it. I'm tired of it. That's exactly what this says. Well, if you hate it and you're tired of it, they say, don't do that. Don't do that. You're actually cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. Proverbs 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer wins abuse. But whoever rebukes the wicked gets hurt or reproves the wicked. It's not always easy. Have any of you ever lashed out against somebody who's come to you? because they generally wanted to intervene. I have. Her name's Debbie, by the way. <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least most days. <laughs> and, and maybe my lashing out, I know that, you know, I'm, I've been around the block. I, I, I know to, you know, suddenly go all like, how dare you come in my house, say that to me. I mean, I know that that's, that, that's not going to fly, so I become more sophisticated in it with a... You know, I, I appreciate so much what you're trying to do here, but I think I'd just better help you right now before you, this train leaves the station to realize that you've got some of your facts wrong. And maybe if you knew the facts, then maybe you wouldn't have to go through all of these, you know, kind of energy that, you, that you're going through right now. Just trying to help, you know, kind of clarify and refine some things here for you. And, you know, it sounds nice, but what am I trying to do? I am trying to shut down the very intervening work that God's trying to do in my life. And i got to become more and more aware of it. We all do. If we want the gift that comes from this. Um, a scoffer, this is also in Proverbs 9, a scoffer, when reproved, will only hate you. The wise, when reproved, will love you. Ouch. You know, we were in a, uh, a discipleship group not too long ago, and it was actually very uh, mature people. I mean, they've been Christians a long time. And in the middle of this, this group where we're trying to help one another... The, the one was, was sharing that this person tried to do this, tried to reprove them. And, and it was interesting that the person said, I, 
I, I remember when, when they were saying that to me because they were really attacking me at the moment. And I thought, attacking? They were pleading. They're pleading to help you open your eyes. But it's so easy. And, and again, this is not like a young Christian or a hurting Christian. This is somebody very mature. We easily fall into this. They think, oh, that's an attack. It's not... It's what Satan wants us to kind of re, 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 uh, reframe it as rather than to see it the way that it needs to be seen. Let me go through a couple more of these because they're very convicting. Very convicting. Uh, whoever winks the eye, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more. Money Python. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble. But the one who reproves boldly makes peace. Proverbs 10. Proverbs 15. Scoffers do not like to be reproved, and so they will not go to the wise. They know who to go to. I know who to go to if I don't want to be reproved. I know how to play that game. i got to go to the person that's going to give me the gift. Those who reprove the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. It's no fun to do this. You may have tried it with me and realized it was no fun. The Bible here is saying, persevere. Persevere, for if you do, you will have a blessing. There is no blessing in trying to be kind according to the world's standards. There's only by being kind in alignment with the will of God, which is not to wink the eye when there's a need to be reproving, but rather to boldly prove where none have reproved before. <laughs> Proverbs 28. Whoever rebukes or reproves a person will afterward find more favor than the one who flatters with the tongue. We're all tempted to just go down the path of flattery in our mind saying we're just encouraging. And if they just had more encouragement, maybe that'll help them to repent. Well, yes, we always encourage. We always encourage. We can't forsake encouragement but we're not tempted not to encourage. Like, I was, you know, I, I was thinking about encouraging Shane after what he shared today, but uh, I don't know. It's so hard to do. It's so hard to say good job. Maybe, maybe I'll just back off from that. Nobody says that. But we, but we find a way not to reprove. And don't think that we are stronger or more decisive or more discerning because we were the ones who knew it was time to flatter. Oftentimes, the right path when the Holy Spirit is, is churning inside of us is to reprove. We've got to make sure that is exactly what we are doing. Amen. Next slide, please, Bishop. So, here's praying that during this holiday season, we're going to be spending time with one another. We'll be seeking time, perhaps, with one another. And as we do that we will be serious about preparing ourselves for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Not only to honor the arrival that is already to come, but to prepare ourselves for Jesus. Because when He comes again, it's not to intervene for sin. When He comes again, it is only with fire. And in... I'll just read this to you. But in, in, in Malachi 3, you can stay where you are, I'll just read this to you. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. What is coming our way is a vital crisis. 
It's the greatest dividing moment that will ever occur in the history of all the cosmos. And it's coming our way. Jesus Christ is coming to town. It matters. And it matters intensely. And to just kind of shirk it off because time weighs heavy on our hands because we might be young, like me. Or, or maybe it's because of, 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 of just the fact that you're so kind of engrossed in the, in the mundane that, that we don't step back and realize, well, the holiday season is actually meant to give us the chance to realize that Jesus Christ is coming to town. And that there is a great gift, the greatest of all gifts, Intervention by God Himself for the sake of our sin and for the sake of our righteousness. So that we can anticipate when Jesus comes, standing before His throne of judgment with excitement. That's only going to happen if we deal with the reproof now. If we shirk off the reproof now, we are not going to be in any way excited to come before that throne of judgment. But the pay me now or pay me later for sure is a great application here. If we just simply grab onto, pursue, initiate intervention in our lives, the refining work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is phenomenal. It's what a prophet does. It's how everybody in the Bible comes to repentance. There's always somebody that knocks on the door saying, I got a little something to share with you. Nobody likes it at first. Who here as a husband actually wants to hear your wife say, when's a good time for the two of us to talk? <laughs> but that conversation, if we're humble, and if we recognize it and receive it, whether it be from your wife, whether it be from your friend, whether it be from even somebody that, that just wants to see righteousness in your life, that conversation is exactly the gift that God is sending you this holiday so that ultimately when that time comes to appear before Christ, we do it with excitement, with great excitement. If you're going the speed limit and you see a state patrol uh, vehicle, a, a police officer going down the road and you're going the speed limit and you know you are, what do you feel like when you see that car? Yes, tax dollars at work. You go, boy. That's right. That's right. Uh, kill him. Yeah, get it. Right? I don't mean kill him. But like a uh, kill him type thing. But you are. You are excited. You are excited when you see, when you see that. That's, that's what righteousness actually does for us when we, become, when we are brought before righteous judgment. When we've been refined and we know that we have the righteousness of Christ, when we've despaired of our own and we come before that throne, we are like, bring it on. Oh, come Jesus. How much longer? How long until I can open up that gift? It's been under that tree. I've been waiting for it. I've been persevering. I've been laboring. When will it come? If you want to have that attitude every day of your life, every day, I cannot wait to the new heaven, the new earth. I cannot wait for the judgment throne. I cannot wait to receive my crown. I cannot wait. Well, the gift is given now. Amen. Simply receive it through the reproving work. Merry Christmas. Amen.